Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and the goodness of your character and your kingdom and the way your methods work in this universe. We invite you into our hearts this morning. We ask that you enlighten us, draw us closer to you and closer to each other. And the members of our class who are traveling in a way, we, we pray your, your hand and safety be upon them and your blessings in their life and their family and bring them back safely. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So I've been away, for those who didn't know, uh, a week ago or so, I was uh, at an atonement conference in California for uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then on Sunday I flew to Kettering where I was involved in a um, conference for pastors in North America, about 100 pastors are in attendance, or talking about mental health and, and God's principles of healing the mind. At the Atonement Conference, there were multiple speakers. I was one of the presenters, and none of the speakers there uh, advocated or promoted the traditional penal view, uh, even though some felt that view was a nice, uh, helpful metaphor, but just not the most helpful way to understand the cross. Um, Gene Sheldon presented a really incredible, validated history from historical records of ancient Babylon about how this imperial law construct came in from ancient Babylon um, versus the the natural design law and the and the divergence in in how that led to a lot of pagan god concepts and things. So I thought that was incredibly um, well done to, to have those historical documents and records. It was really nicely done. Um, and then one speaker presented some things that I'd never heard before that was uh, helpful to come to an awareness of because it's led me to a new concern that we need to be aware of. And, and he presented on what some might call the social gospel or womanist gospel or some of these things. And in this particular perspective, the cross is not what's central to understanding. It's a person's experience, and the experience of those who have been mistreated and downtrodden and so forth is, is what's most important in this gospel. And what I discovered was that you know that we teach the integrative evidence-based approach here. And we've talked about the dangers that if you have science all by itself, it risks going into godlessness. And that scripture all by itself can lead to confusion. There's 34,000 different Christian groups all arguing this text or that text back and forth. So a lot of confusion when we don't anchor it in, in how reality works and God's testable laws. And, and then experience all by itself, I've historically said, leads to mysticism in the mystical religions, which it does. But now I've discovered from this presentation that there's another concern. It can lead to these social justice gospels where the experience of the person defines ultimately. And so they're taking the position in the social justice gospels that the, the death of Christ on the cross was not necessary for salvation. Um, it was an interruption to the salvation plan. And that if you include the death of Christ as necessary for salvation, the idea is you justify violence against the downtrodden, and therefore you justify slavery and you justify mistreatment of people if you take that position. And I think you all can see there's a real kind of distortion in that thinking, but that's what happens when you put people's experience at the center rather than putting the reality of our condition and what Christ achieved for us at the center. And then at the pastor's conference, I presented two lectures there, one on the mind, God's design, and what went wrong, and the God-shaped brain talk. I presented both of those. Huge positive response, and we gave every one of them a complimentary copy of the new book, The God-Shaped Heart. And so we're, we had just nothing but enthusiastic positive response on these talks, and I've already had several invitations to come and speak at other places that these pastors are located at. So, All right, let's go in with our lesson this week, and we're doing uh, Salvation by Faith, Alone, the book of Romans, and we're doing lesson five, the faith of Abraham. And the memory text is Romans 3.31 from the King James, and it says, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Yeah, how many have heard that text before? 
Okay? When you hear it, do you instantly ask yourself the question, what law? And what law lends? Am I looking Am I looking at this functionally? God's law works like our laws, simply a system of rules that we have to punish by and keep track of misdeeds over? Or am I thinking God is creator, designer, builder, and thus I'm thinking the laws upon which he's constructed all reality, including our minds to operate upon and our hearts to operate upon? Which way am I seeing law here? It says... Uh, we do not make the law void through faith. Well, when you hear faith, what do you hear? What is faith? Do you hear trust? Trust. Confidence. Okay. When you understand how design law functions, does your trust or confidence or belief or faith in God increase or decrease when you understand design law? Does your faith in God increase or decrease? It says we establish the law by faith. What does that mean? We, our faith establishes the law? Well, modern, more modern translations than the King James don't use the word establish. They use the word uphold. We uphold the law by our faith. How does our faith uphold the law? Well, when we understand design law and we are one to trust, then we, in our beliefs, our testimony, our comprehension, our choices, the longings and values that are in our heart now, we identify, we align with, we side with God and his design and his methods. Thus our lives become living representatives, if you will, of God's, and I'll write my law in your heart and mind, it says in Hebrews, of God's living law of love. We demonstrate, sustain, or uphold that harmony with God's designs or laws are the only basis for life, health, and happiness. Our lives show this. That's how we uphold it. Third paragraph in the, in the lesson says, In Romans 4, Paul reveals three major stages in the plan of salvation. One, the promise of divine blessing, the promise of grace. Two, the human response to that promise, the response of faith. And three, the divine pronouncement of righteousness credited to those who believe justification. That's how it worked with Abraham, and that's how it works with us. Is that an accurate description of how it works? Or only partially accurate? Two out of three is not bad. Two out of three is not bad. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, This is the view that you get when you come at it, assuming God's law functions like our law. This is what you get. So let's look at them. Let's let's take them point by point. Does Does God promise grace? Yes. yes, absolutely. Does there need to be a human response to God's grace by having faith or trust in him? Yes. Absolutely, yes. When we trust God, does that result in a legal action in which God declares us to be righteous even though we're not? Is that what happens? No. This is the lie. The belief based on the lie that God's laws like our laws and we need a legal declaration of pronouncement. So it promotes a legal fraud that God is actually declaring something to be true when it's actually not true. And this is what is taught in the penal view. The lesson states this is how it worked with Abraham. Is it how it worked with Abraham? So let's ask some questions. It's not how it worked with Abraham, and I'll show you, I'll show you the evidence of that. So what is the problem first that sin caused? When Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, what was the problem that just happened from their sin that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? So when Adam sinned, did God get changed in any way? 
You know, there are some views out there that he did. He suddenly became hurt. His feelings got hurt. He got angry. He was filled with wrath. He's hostile. He's upset. I don't believe that. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He never changes. I change not. So God didn't change. Did God's law get changed? No, God's law didn't. God didn't get changed. God's law didn't get changed. Did the condition of the human species get changed? So however you understand the plan of salvation, the action, if God didn't get changed, if his law didn't get changed, if the condition of humankind got changed, then where's the fix need to, to work? It needs to do something in humankind. It needs to fix what's broken in us now. And what happened is love and trust were replaced with distrust, fear, and selfishness. They didn't trust God. They're now fearful, and they're self-centered. That's what happened. So in order to restore humankind to unity with God, i.e. save the species human, nothing needs to happen to God, nothing needs to happen to his law, something needs to happen to the condition of humankind. So with that in mind, let's look what the Bible actually says about Abraham. Uh, Romans 4, 1 and 2, this is the good news version. What shall we say then of Abraham, the father of our race? What was his experience? If he was put right, pause, What's another name for put right? Justified. Justified. Okay, that's justification. If he was put right with God by the things he did, he would have something to boast about, but not in God's sight. The scripture says Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. This is, uh, this is what happened. So, according to scripture, Romans 8, 7, what is the natural state of the sinful human heart? Enmity. Enmity. Some say hostility. Is, is that, would that be a state, the natural state of the sinner? Do we naturally trust God and love him, or do we naturally distrust him and are hostile to him? What's the natural state? According to Scripture, distrust and hostile. Romans 8, 7. Therefore, when Abraham trusted God, that is evidence of a change in his natural state of heart. Distrust went to trust. And therefore, after he trusts God, then God recognized him as put right, set right, justified, or righteous. Because he was changed. This is not a legal accounting. This is an actual inner working of the spirit, the, the, the spirit of truth, drawing and wooing, knocking on the door of the heart. We open the heart, we let Christ come in, and we have a change. That's the setting right. That's true righteousness or justification. Fourth paragraph says, it's crucial to remember that for Paul, (coughs) excuse me, it's crucial to remember that for Paul, salvation is by grace. It's something that is given to us, however undeserving we are. If we deserved it, then it would be owed, we would be owed it. If we were owed it, it's a debt and not a gift. And for being as corrupt and fallen as we are, salvation has to be a gift. Do you like these, this type of reasoning? Now, there's, there is truth in here, but this truth is, is it's, it's like there's water here, but there's a whole bunch of dirt in there, so it's murky and muddy. Okay, there is truth in here, but it's been, it's been mucked up. Some giardia in there, too. A giardia. Infection in there, too, is what he's saying. Do, do, you, do, you, do you hear the part about the truth? The truth is, what God provided to us is an absolute free gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. We didn't work for it. That's absolutely true. But they're constructing this in such a way 
that creates this kind of tension. Do you feel it? Undeserving. And be a debt to us. It's, in other words, this whole description is operating again through how imposed laws work. That's how it's being described. Shaming us into compliance. Shaming us into compliance. Does, does Romans 13.8, I'm going to read Romans 13.8, this idea that we just read, does it shed any light under this question that we're talking about? Free gift, but if we deserved it, be owed to us. If it owed to us, it's a debt, not a gift, so it can't be a debt. This is Romans 13.8. See if it throws any light on it. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt of love to one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Think about that. Debt of love. Hmm. When Adam sinned, did God love Adam less? Did God's love long for Adam and want to save Adam and all humans. Does his love long for us when Adam sinned? Do we deserve this love? Yes. Did God love Adam and Eden before Adam sinned? Yes. Did Adam deserve God's love then? Does sinless Gabriel deserve God's love? Do sinless beings who stay faithful and never rebel like Gabriel, do they, by doing that, earn God's love? Do you see how we're taking apart this whole idea? The, the, the description of this undeserving stuff instills a false idea that we're undeserving because we're sinners. And if we were not sinners, then we would deserve it. Hmm. Think about with your children. Do your children deserve your love only when they obey? And they don't deserve your love when they disobey? Does your love primarily speak about the worth, merit, and deserving rights of the one you love? Or does your love primarily speak about your character and your heart? So do we earn the remedy to our sin? Absolutely not. We do not. It's a complete and free gift from God. And we can never procure it. We can never produce it. We can never work for it. It's a free gift. And where does it come from? Why, does it, why was it achieved for us? What was the motivation for that? Because we're so good? Or because God's so love? love. Because God is love. And that love flows from God. Because God is love, not because we are good. Yes? Tim, are you saying that love by its very nature cannot be deserved or undeserved? And if you're saying that, that fits perfectly with the theme of the book of Job, I think. Yeah, I think love by its very nature ultimately is an evidence of the one who loves. We don't, we don't deserve or undeserve love. We, is that right? Yeah. I don't think... Do you think that... Now, now, when you see how love functions, this is where it gets a little subtle. As love functional, operational, you can talk about God um, loves some more than others. Functionally, how does he love some more? Because they receive. Ah, so more love can flow into them. So more of his love is experienced by them and transforms them and they get a depth, greater personal experience and depth and knowledge of his love. So he loves them more functionally because they open the heart and respond 
But the Bible clearly says God shows no partiality. Right, but his love is the same. But some close their hearts so they don't experience his love. So, they, so he loves them less functionally, but not from what he would like to do with them. His heart loves them infinitely and he wants to pour it in, but their relationship doesn't process the love so they experience it less. Does that make sense? Well, it fits in beautifully with the theme of the book of Job. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that because that's kind of a new concept. I've never thought of the I deserved love. Ever. Or, well, it's not a matter of deserve or don't deserve. It's God is love. And again, does, does Gabriel deserve it because he's loyal? It's not the right question. So in this sense, in this sense, we deserve it by who we are, God's creation and the objects of his love by design. We have been constructed by God to be the objects of his love. And by his design, we deserve it. In the same way, your car deserves to have gasoline rather than water put in its tank because it was designed to have gasoline put in it. That's its design. So in that sense, we deserve the love because that's our purpose, to experience and reveal and to respond in love. But not because we somehow earn it or merit and we work really hard and therefore, because I work really hard. And this is a human concept. And many people I see in my office were raised in families where they had what's called conditional love. Love that was conditional upon how well they performed, whether they obeyed or not. They weren't loved if they didn't do what they were told. But... The, the obligation to love the child is the parents. That's right. That's the parents. That's right. Mm-hmm. The child doesn't do anything to deserve or undeserve. Except, except for who they are to the parent. And who are they? They're their child. Exactly. And it's so by their identity who they are, not by what they do. Yes. I thought one of the neat things you said there was that it's love is the same, but it's how much you experience it based upon how you've opened your heart to it. Same as, you know, the sun shines for everybody, but some people go in the closet and want a dark room because they have migraines, so they experience less of that same sun. Exactly. I think, thank you for that. So Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, in this passage, which is Romans 3.31, Paul states emphatically that faith does not make void God's law. But even those who kept the law... Even the entire Old Testament corpus of the law were never saved by it. The religion of the Old Testament, as that of the new, was always one of God's grace given to sinners by faith. What what do you th- it means? Um, you know Romans three thirty one. The faith does not make void the law. That's what it says in Romans three thirty one. What, what does it, you think it means? Make void the law. Why is he? Ha- why is, do you think? Why is Paul even having to say this? Because he's talking to legalists. Oh, he's talking to legalists who see the law. What kinds of law can you... Are there certain types of law you can make void? You can void certain types of law. Yes. What, give me a law that you could void. Speed limit law. A speed limit. Oh, a speed limit. Yes, you could void that law. No smoking in public buildings. You could void that law. Uh, marijuana is illegal. It's getting voided in a lot of states right now. Isn't it true? But can you void the laws of health? In other words, when they pass the law that marijuana is legal, it now becomes healthy for you to to use. No, you can't void the laws of health. So the fact that he's having to have these arguments 
you, the, 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 what Christ has done and God's grace is not void. The law is an evidence of this deep infection that, that as uh, uh, Gene Sheldon pointed out last, last week at, at the Atonement Conference, goes all the way back to Babylon. It's been, it was in the Old Testament. It was in, uh, it was in Judaism at the time of Christ. It was in, um, uh, Christ came and expunged it, and we had a new, brief, little glow of bright light in the First Testament church, first century church, but then the infection comes back. The little man of sin is going to rise. He's going to set himself up in God's temple and this whole distortion re-enters again and we have this idea in Christianity that God's law functions like our law. It all happened again. And this is how the law becomes voided. So here's what happens when you think through design law. And think about, this is a metaphor for the plan of salvation. If you, you have faith or trust in your doctor who has a remedy for your otherwise terminal condition, you have a terminal condition, but your doctor has a remedy, and you have faith and trust in your doctor. Does your faith and trust in your doctor and his remedy make void the laws of health? See how simple that is? That is so simple. If a person was born HIV positive, does their obeying all the laws of health remedy their condition? They eat right, they exercise. Does it, does, does it, does it cure them if they obey all the laws of health now? Do you see how obeying the laws do not provide salvation? They don't remedy the problem. We still have to have a remedy. Obeying God's laws do not remedy our condition, accepting the remedy that Christ procured does, and what he procured always restores us back to harmony with God's design laws. A new heart and spirit, new motives. We love others. We're honest. We're truthful. We're not self-centered anymore. We're not fear-operating anymore. So when you come back to design law, do you see how this tension that they're so desperate to argue about just fades away? It just evaporates. It's not there. Second paragraph asks, what, for instance, was the entire sanctuary ritual if not a representation of how sinners are saved, not by their own works, but by the death of a substitute in their stead? So I just want to state this. I thought there was an opportunity to state it because I get accused a lot of times from certain segments of uh, Christianity of denying the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. Do we in this class believe that Christ was our substitute? Yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. What we deny, we don't deny the substitutionary nature of his death. We deny the penal legal need or argument that was for a penal purpose to pay some legal debt. No, it wasn't for that. It took He who knew no sin, here's the scripture, he, Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. There's substitution right there. So that here's the reason in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. Notice the difference. This is not penal legal. It's recreative and restorative of the species back to God's design. I just want to point that out. The last paragraph states Paul sets David's restoration to divine favor as an example of justification by faith. So let's look at Romans 4, 6 through 8. This is the Good News Bible again, speaking of of David's restoration. Here's what it says. This is what David meant when he spoke of the happiness of the person who God accepts as righteous, apart from anything that the person does. Happy are those whose wrongs are forgiven, whose sins are pardoned. Happy is the person whose sins the Lord will not keep an account of. What do you hear there? How do you understand it? If you come to the scripture with an idea that God's law is like our law, legal accounting, do you hear it in a certain certain way? 
If you have design law, do you hear it differently? Well, here's from the remedy for those who haven't read it in the remedy. Here's what it says in the remedy. David says the exact same thing when he describes the blessedness of a person whom God bestows his perfect cure without them working to earn it. Happy are those whose wicked minds are restored to perfect purity, whose selfishness is eradicated. Happy is the person whose infected heart the Lord transforms to perfection. Think about it. Seriously, think about it. Which brings more and genuine happiness? To have historical or legal records of evil and sin erased out of record books, or to have evil and sin removed from the character and the mind and the heart? What brings real happiness? See, the other thing's a fiction. It cheats people out of real happiness. You don't get real happiness by legally declaring something but not changing the part. It doesn't work. So in, in my new book, The God-Shaped Heart, I explore Psalms 51. I'll, I'll go through a little bit of that with you. This is David's you know, Psalms of, of repentance. Notice what he says, and we're going to look. What is David actually praying? Because David held up an example. So let's look what David actually went through. Psalms 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Pause. That's verse 1. Verse 2 is going to get a little more detail, but as you're reading it, what do you think, David? Blot out my transgressions from where? From history? From record books? This is a common teaching. So if David, if, if you have that view, which is the legal model view, does that mean when we are here, because David, David sins when beforehand of judgment some teach, and they were wiped out in the, in, the, in the heavenly sanctuary, out of the record book. So as we're talking about David today and reading about his life, do the angels look at each other and go, what are they talking about? We don't, we don't, we don't have any memory of that or knowledge of that up here at all. Or the Bible. The Bible records it. Yes, no Bibles in heaven. <laughs> Wiped out. No. Next verse, verse 2. He says, blot out my transgressions. His next words, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Oh, do you think that's enlightening what he's asking for? Where is the blotting out happening? The sinfulness and selfishness in the heart that leads to these behaviors. That's what he wants wiped out. Um, He recognizes something's wrong with him that needs purifying. Verse 3 and 4. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. What's going on here? Simply, he's acknowledging that alone, his situation is terminal, he's sick of heart and mind, and God's diagnosis of him is accurate. You are right to diagnose me as dead in trespass and sin. I'm terminal. Verse 5. Enlightening, enlightening again what he just said. Very next verse. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There it is. I have this condition with which I was born. I didn't choose it, but it's sick. I'm dying. It leads to all this bad stuff. And verse 6. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Again, where is the focus of the change that he's asking? David is held up as an example by Paul. Where does David put the change? And then verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Again, where is the healing and the change? This is what scripture truly teaches. That when you come to Jesus Christ and you see the truth of who he is and what he's revealed, the lies are displaced and you're one to trust and you go, 
And because I stand at the door and knock, you open your heart and you say, Lord, come in. And he comes in with the Spirit and the Spirit takes the victory of Christ and reproduces in us. You get new heart, new motive, new drives. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the cleansing that David was praying for. This is justification. Monday's lesson, first two paragraphs read, the issue Paul is dealing with here is much more than just theology. It gets to the heart and soul of salvation in our relationship to God. If one believes that he or she must earn acceptance, that he or she must reach a certain standard of holiness before being justified and forgiven, then how natural to turn inward and to look to oneself and one's deeds. Religion can become exceedingly self-centered about the last thing anyone needs. In contrast, if one grasps the great news of justification, that justification is a gift from God, totally unmerited and undeserved, how much easier and more natural is it for a person to turn his or her focus on God's love and mercy instead of on self? I like where they're trying to go with this. I really do. I think their intention here is really good. They want to turn away from a self-centered salvation to an other-centered salvation. And, and, and they had a sentence right in the middle of the first paragraph. Because if one believes that he or she must earn acceptance, that he or she must earn a certain standard of holiness before they're justified, this is very discouraging. Uh, you mean like, um, after I accept Jesus as my Savior and want to be baptized before the church will baptize me, I've got to quit smoking, overcome my addiction, and quit my Sabbath job, stop wearing jewelry, and clean myself up first, and then they'll baptize me? <laughs> that I must reach a certain standard of holiness before I can become a Christian? Do you know that's very common in many segments of Christianity? That's not the New Testament gospel. They preached and they were convicted and they were baptized on the same day. The, the eunuch, the Philip, there's water. What, what holds us up? Why would people put these barriers up? Because they love the soul and they want to bring them to Christ? Or because they live in fear of what will happen to the institution if they bring people in the institution who haven't overcome their addictions and clean themselves up first? Well, once, they're, once, they're, once we baptize them and they're a member of the institution, they have voting rights. And, and the whole to institute, we, better to lose a soul than to corrupt the institution. Better for one man to die than the nation. It's a fear-based gospel. It's a simple solution. I've said it many times. All you have to do is just decouple baptism into Christ, become a member of the family of God from membership in any organizational institution. You're now a Christian. Now, which organization would you like to affiliate with, if any? Do you want to join this church or that church or that denomination? Let the Holy Spirit guide you. And if you want to join, well, in this organization, we have certain requirements that you have to meet before we'll accept you into membership of the organization, but you're already a member of Christ. This entire concern evaporates again when we come back to understand God's law correctly. If you had that HIV infection or metastatic cancer, would you think, would you think, seriously, you got metastatic cancer, you got HIV infection, would you ever think, well, if I keep the Sabbath, or if I exercise regularly, or if, if I get baptized in the right way, then, then any of that stuff I can do, that'll cure me. I'll be cured if I do that. Would you ever think that? You would know there's nothing, there's no work you're going to do that's going to cure you. You need an external cure, an external remedy. The problem occurs when we accept the lie that the, that the sin problem is not a condition of being with which we were born and we don't need to feel guilty for and for which Christ has provided a free remedy that we can accept. The problem is when we, when we accept the lie that, that the sin problem is, is doing bad stuff and it's up to us and everybody's chosen to do bad stuff and so it's all on you in the first place and you made the choice to do bad stuff so... You've got to be accountable for it. You've got to be punished. 
Some have been confused about what we teach in here. And I've heard this in my travels. Because I, I'm teaching about setting the heart and mind right, and winning us back to trust, and restoring Christ's likeness, some accuse me of making trust the justifying element. Not so. So I'm going to walk you through point by point my understanding, and you tell me if at any point you diverge and see it differently, and we'll, we'll unpack that. Point one, Adam and Eve were created sinless and perfect. Point two, they were free moral agents who had the ability in themselves to develop a perfect character by exercising their sinless abilities to choose to be loyal to God and live in harmony with his design. In Eden, they had the ability to do that. Point three, they instead chose to believe lies, form defective characters, infecting humanity with fear and selfishness. Point four, sin did not change God or God's law, but changed the condition of humankind. Only God, point five, only God could fix what Adam did to humankind. No person born of natural human ability could fix what Adam did to the human species. Point six, Jesus partook of our humanity in order to fix what sin did to his creation. Point seven, the species, the species human was set right, fixed, put right, made righteous, also known as justified with God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the human being that lives endlessly. He is the human being that destroyed the, the drive to act in self-interest. He is the human being that restored love back into the species human. He is the human being that set the species human right with God. And because of Jesus Christ, there will always be a living human being. And as long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Because of Jesus Christ, the human species will never be extinct. It will exist forever. So the species human was set right in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ in his victory becomes the new head of humanity, the second Adam who eradicates the infection of fear and selfishness, restores God's love perfectly, developing a perfect human character. Christ's victory also, in doing so, procures the remedy which is freely available to all humans who trust and accept him. We as individuals are individually put right or set right or justified when we in heart are one from distrust to trust and open our hearts to God. Then like Abraham, when we trust God, God recognizes we are now in a right relationship with him and pours his spirit into our heart, Romans 5, 5, and takes the perfection of Christ and reproduces it in us. So do we diverge anywhere on any of those points? Did you hear anything legal in there? Fourth paragraph. The sinners, this is out of a book called Selective Messages, page 215. The sinner must come in faith to Christ to take hold of his merits, lay his sins upon the sin bearer, and receive his pardon. It was for this cause that Christ came into the world. Thus the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the repenting, believing sinner. He becomes a member of the royal family. What does this mean? When I was at the Atonement Conference, one of the other theologians who spoke, he spoke on Sunday, um, put a question to me and brought up the question of imputed righteousness. And theology professors traditionally will, will make a distinction between imputed and imparted. Imparted righteousness, they will tell you, is what you receive into your heart that changes you. That's imparted. It's imparted to you. Imputed righteousness, they will tell you, is the righteousness that gets legally accounted to your records in heaven even when you're still not righteous. 
So they, the theologians, make this distinction and then write books and treatises and indoctrinate people's minds to believe there's some distinction between imputed and imparted. Functionally. Functional distinction. This author was just quoted, and thus the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the repenting sinner, believing sinner, he becomes a member of the royal family. Imputed. So it might be helpful if you want to, it doesn't really describe here what imputed means, it just uses that term. It might be helpful to let the same author use that term in various places and see how it functions in that author's understanding anyway, and we make an insight into what that author meant by imputed in this case. Does that make sense? And before I read some more comments from that author, I just want to tell you, I believe the imputed imparted distinction is a construct of theologians. They've made it up. That they are really synonyms. Two ways to describe the same thing. Perhaps with this subtle difference. The imparted is describing the same functional reality from the experience of the one receiving it where the imputed is describing it from the experience of the one sending it. But it's the same exact functional reality. Now, let's read some of these other quotes. This is out of um, AG 96. But if we all with open faces behold as in, a as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed in the same images from glory to glory even as the spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as hidden treasures. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. Who's going to disagree with that? When we, when we take him as our personal savior, he gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. By beholding, we, bec we become changed, morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. What, what does that describe to you? How is it used functionally here? Internal transformation. Let's look at another one. The same book, page 181. Abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limitless resources, has been placed at our command. We are to draw from the well of salvation. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous, having been, excuse me, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. What does having made us righteous? Do you notice that this is very, very distinct language? It's not what you would read in a theology textbook. In the theology textbooks here, what you would read is having declared us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's what you'd read in a textbook. This author says, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is our high calling 364. We aim too low. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, and here's where we aim as traditional theologians. We aim for legal pardon. That's where we aim. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. And one more, that I may know him, page 206. We aim, excuse me, um, he would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that we might, start over. 
He would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God, and reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ's imputed righteousness. Do you see any of this legal declaration stuff here? Functionally, it's the same. Theologians, however, who operate under this false law construct will take the imputed language and apply it to legal declarations and applications in courtrooms in heaven and cheat you from the transformation and reconstruction. Now, with all that being said, and I think, I think my view, they're synonyms, Possibly, and I will open, I'm open to the fact that, okay, the imparted is really primarily emphasizing our experience. The imputed is ex- exercising God's releasing of an attitude towards and grace ex- uh, leaving from his person. That we, but it's, a, it's an experience that comes from God that we participate in. Now, with that in mind, is there a question? Yes. That's why Paul uses such radical... A metaphor, and really not a metaphor in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, that we are dead before conversion and alive after conversion. You can't be half alive or half dead. That's right. It's a radical change. That's right. And I've come to, just in the last couple of weeks, to understand that what conversion is, is not my will, but thine be done. Yes, 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 exactly. So, so if we take that now, do we believe there are records in heaven? Yes. So then, with all that in mind, what's being recorded in the records in heaven? Our the imputed righteousness. Pardon? Our, you said our character. Reality. Yes. And so the same author, here's the same author, is what, what was written here. Remember your character is being photographed. Actually, using a 19th century language, daguerreotyped, but that's a, an old photograph. By the great master artist, capital master artist. In the record books of heaven, as minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. So, so if you want to take the records, heaven records approach to things being recorded and cleansed in the records of heaven, you need to conceptualize heavenly records no different than you would medical records. There are medical records, and medical records will do- document, if they're accurate, the pathology, the sickness, the disease. Medical records will also document the remedy, the cure, and medical records will then document that you are now disease-free, healthy, cancer's in remission. So if you want to have your medical records cleansed of sin, the only avenue to do that is to have your hearts cleansed from sin. <laughs> That's how you get the records cleansed. This other legal thing, though, bypasses that and cheats people and gives them a form of godliness with no power because it has them praying for a direct access to the records and just go in and do legal accounting on the records, but don't do anything in my heart. And we're even told they can't do anything to my heart. We'll sin right up. There's no victory. We sin every day. There's no expectation for victory. We're sinners. Don't even try for that. That Everything was put on Christ, past, present, and future, paid for. Just take the payment and move on and sin. You see the cheat. You're sick. You're never going to get well. There's no cure. But we can give you a medical record that says you're healthy even though you're not. A form of healthiness but denying the power thereof. Tuesday's lesson focuses on Romans 4, 14 through 17. And this is uh, from the NIV. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. 
And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but are also of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Okay, was that really plain for everybody? Or do you go like, what? Was that easy? I just really get that. Are you going like, what did that even say? That is what happens when you translate scripture through the idea that God's law functions like our law. You get this kind of language in there, and it's like, I'm not even trying to follow that. No, there's not, rightly understood, that's perfectly fine, but it, it makes it harder to understand. So Paul says something cannot come about by law-keeping. That's what he just said. Something cannot come about by law-keeping. What cannot come about by law-keeping? Righteousness. That's what can't come about by law-keeping. So here's those same passages from the remedy. See if this sounds any different to you. If it were possible to develop perfect motives, methods, and principles by performing rituals or following a certain code, then there would be no need to trust God for his healing power in our lives, and his promised inheritance would be meaningless. The written law or code simply exposes the extent of our sickness of mind and heart, which, if not cured, results in death. If it weren't for the written law, we wouldn't even know how sick we are, for without some standard of health to measure by, no defect would be diagnosed. Therefore, the restoration to a perfect state of being and the inheritance of eternal life on a renewed earth comes by trusting the one who made the promise to do it. This transformation is accomplished by God's graciousness and is guaranteed to all the children of Abraham, not only as genetic descendants who are given the written diagnostic code, but also as spiritual descendants who, just like Abraham, trust God. As it is written, I have made you the father of many different ethnic groups. The God, the God who, in whom Abraham trusted, the creator God, who is the source of all life and who calls things into existence from nothingness, considers all of us who trust him to be the descendants of Abraham. Any, any disagreement with how I wrote that? Isn't that easier to understand? Well, the problem is the verse puts righteousness in opposition to the law. But the moral law rightly understood is righteousness. It's not opposition. Right. But, again, trying to keep the law doesn't result in it. Any more than trying, if you're infected with HIV, trying to keep all the laws of health doesn't get you rid of the infection. So, right, and taking the remedy, though, doesn't do away with the laws of health. Yeah, they're not, there's no tension there, but when you have the legal model, then it creates this false tension. So the implications for us today, what's being said is, uh, what, what are the implications? What about the genetic descendants of Abraham today? If you're a genetic descendant of Abraham, in other words, biologically Jewish, do you have some other avenue of salvation than Jesus Christ? No. This is what he's saying. What about the promises made to Abraham and his descendants? Are those promises to the people who have certain gene constellations that come from Abraham? Or are they for all those who, like Abraham, trust God and are children of Abraham? I'll leave that with you to ponder. Wednesday's lesson. And I just want you to notice how rapidly we're going through the lesson this week. Aren't you amazed? Yes. First paragraph. 
As we saw yesterday, Paul showed that God's dealing with Abraham proved that that salvation comes through the promise of grace and not through law. Therefore, if the Jews wished to be saved, they would have to abandon trust in their works for salvation and accept the Abrahamic promise now fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. It's the same really for everyone, Jew or Gentile, who thinks that their good deeds are all that it takes to make them right with God. So the lesson is affirming the question I just asked. Anybody who's saved is saved or healed through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. And that was through the promise, the one that was promised. And Jesus is the one that was promised. And what did Jesus promise to accomplish? I'll make, put it to you this way. Simon, at our, Simon, for those who don't, Simon, uh, our, our, uh, man, uh, our leader of our ministry and, and managerial person down in Australia, flew in from Australia for the conference in California last week. It was so great to have some time with Simon. And uh, he asked this question. It may not be the exact words, but this is the tenant or the idea of the question he asked to the panel, all the, all the people uh, that spoke. He said, if, uh, if a person who doesn't believe in Jesus were to come up to you on the plane or on the street and say to you, hey, um, tell me in, in one or two sentences, what does Jesus' death do for me? What would you tell him? He provides an example. So dying is an example. So, so, so he provides an example. And how is his example different than Gandhi's example or any of the martyrs? Stephen, who was stoned, uh, don't lay this to their account. Stephen's death provides an example. Um, what would you say? How does this, what does his death do for me? Yes. It reveals the character of God, reveals the character of Jesus, and reveals the character of Satan. And how does that, why is that important for me? There's an understanding, I mean, it clarifies the, uh, the characters of them. So if, it, if it's called in question by anybody, the cross helps clarify. So the cross proves that God will kill the innocent instead of the guilty, so the, the guilty can go free. This is, this is a person who doesn't know God, just hears things in the traditional you know, world about Christianity, and so it reveals God's character and reveals that he kills innocent people, the innocent, so the guilty can get off. I mean, if you try to explain it all in a sentence, it's very difficult. Yes, it is. That's why I'm putting it to you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not picking on you. I think that was an... Okay. Okay, you had a hand up. It shows us that God is totally unselfish, and Satan, his enemy, has accused him of being arbitrary, selfish, vindictive, that he lies for his own good. But, but God demonstrated his love and that he, he would allow himself to be killed. Other, other, these are all excellent things. I think I, there's nothing wrong here at all. I think you're all doing great, but yes. He destroyed the claims of Satan that he was the prince of this world. He disputed the claims of Satan, is that what you said? It disproved them. Okay, yes, yeah. That was pretty much what I was going to say to everybody looking, to all the other worlds looking. But the question is, to the non-believer, the question that was asked is, what did Christ's death do for me? His love for me changed me. How, how does it help me? It shows me the freedom of choice that I have. Okay. It gives you an alternate outcome. Oh, I like where you're going with that one. Alternate outcome from what? I like where you're going with that one. It's very hard to put this in a couple sentences, isn't it? Because yeah. it's so much. He did so much. Accomplished so much. Okay, absolutely. How about this for an answer? And again, it's an incomplete answer. I don't think there are any complete answers in a, in a sentence. But Jesus came so that we might be freed from fear and selfishness and live in, lo- and live in love, being at peace with God and each other. Well, like you said, the same question could be back. How? You know, I mean, how is that by seeing a... What, what, the question wasn't how did he do it. The question was what did it do? What did Jesus' death do for me? It provided the means where you can be freed from 
from fear and selfishness and live in love with peace with God and others. That's what he never answer how. The how is a different question. And that's what well, some of my lectures did there. I actually did several lectures there. One of the lectures I did, what did the death of Christ actually accomplish? And I went in step by step what he achieved and why from Scripture. And ultimately what he achieved is, he, if you want to use this word, he destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness that infects all of our hearts. He was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, says in Scripture. We are tempted, we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. In Gethsemane, Christ's humanity experienced this agonizing human emotion to do what? What's it tempted to do? Father, if it be possible, save save yourself. He was tempted with this human longing to save self. But every time the temptation came, because temptation is not sin, every time the temptation came, not my will, thy will be done. And he, no one can take my life, I give it freely. And so where selfishness was abounding, God's perfect love was abounding all the more, and he eradicates it at the cross, This is why he had to die. The only way to destroy that drive was to take it all the way to its end and love perfectly to the end. It's also my belief as to why he could predict so accurately he would rise again because he understands God's law of life and how God built reality to run and that the law of love is the law of life for the universe. And yet we still, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He could not see through the portals of the tomb, as some authors write, meaning he did not have a crystal ball. He did not go outside of time and look down the corridor of time in a time machine and see the future. He didn't do that. What he was able to do is he was able to understand God's law and what was wrong with the human condition, and he knew that when he eradicated what was wrong and fixed the human condition, that is restoring us back to life. And so it would be like saying, how many can predict what's going to happen when I let go of this? Can you predict it? Do you have the gift of prophecy? Do you have a crystal ball? Can you see the future? No, you know the law of gravity. When you know the law of gravity, you know if you do certain actions, the outcome will be predictable. And I think Christ could say, I'm going to be taken, evil men are going to, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the third day because it's the inevitable outcome of eliminating the cause of death. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, that by his death he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. And he knew he was going to achieve that. Yes? I got into a discussion about this to someone. Do you believe that his knowledge of design law and everything, that he had that from his God part of him, or did he relearn that? He relearned it. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced he learned that. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He learned it from studying the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, and nature, and conversing, and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that his humanity learned these things as he grew. Yes, he did not tap into his divine attributes. And, and there's evidence for that. Turn these stones into bread. When was the last time you were tempted to do that? You were not tempted because you can't. But he had the ability, but he didn't tap into his divine attributes. I do nothing of myself. Everything I do is through my Father. So the strength that he did, all of his miracles, were not his personal divine attributes. They were the same way the apostles did miracles. Or Elijah raised the Shunammite sons back to life. It wasn't through Elijah's strength. Elijah was relying on God's strength. And so was Christ relying on his Father. So... Anyway, I did that lecture, and one other lecture that people really seem to really like, I did Investigative Judgment Through the Healing Lens. And that's, uh, I think, available at one of the links there, if you haven't heard that one. So, Thursday's lesson, first paragraph, says, We often hear people say that in the New Covenant the law has been abolished, and then they proceed to quote text that they believe prove the point. The logic behind this statement, however, isn't quite so sound, nor is, it th- is the theology. 
why do people say the law is abolished at the cross? <laughs> because they think, again, that God's law functions like human law. And the old covenant was a keeping of the rules, and the new covenant is, is that Christ, here's the new covenant for many people, Christ came, perfectly kept all the rules for us, all the, pun, all the sins were laid upon him, he paid the full penalty of all those sins, a complete atonement happened at the cross, we accept the legal payment in our behalf, and therefore the, rules don't law, the law no longer applies to that because all the law has been accounted for and fulfilled in Christ. So we don't have to worry about it. We can never keep it anyway, so why try? Design law resolves all this, though, because we understand that what really is happening is we're dead in trespass and sin. We have a terminal condition. Christ came and cured the condition and offers us the remedy. I am going to skip down a little bit from because we're running out of time, and I want to get a couple points. Um, so what would happen if Christ, God's law were abolished? Well, this is um, Matthew 5.18. Through the design law lens, Jesus talking in the um, Sermon on the Mount says, here's the simple truth. This is from the remedy. Heaven and earth would disappear if even the slightest change were made to God's design protocols for life, what you call his law. I'm not here to destroy the law, but to accomplish everything it requires. You see, not one jot or tittle of the law until everything is fulfilled. Okay, that's what I think it means. God, God couldn't change his design laws with, and the universe still exists as he's constructed it. it, would, it if you change gravity by one to the 60th power, that's one with a 60 zeros behind it, by that small amount, then our universe as we know it wouldn't exist. That's how tightly designed and controlled the laws that God runs his universe are. But many Christians who have the imposed law lens read passages like this one, and we'll close with this one. This is from the NIV. This is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And then we'll read it from the remedy. This is of the NIV. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. See, the law was taken away and put to the cross. So here is my uh, understanding in the remedy. When your condition was terminal, when selfishness reigned unchecked in your minds, and when your hearts were tied to the destructive cravings and practices of the world, God intervened and brought you the life-giving remedy, Jesus Christ. He reclaimed you from your terminal condition, nullifying the pathology report that certified you as dead in sin. He made it clear that the written code with its regulations was only a diagnostic instrument designed to expose our terminal state and teach us the need for a true cure, and he nailed it to the cross. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus Christ and Jesus that you came to achieve for us what we never could achieve, eradicating the infection of fear, selfishness, and distrust, revealing the, the, the truth about your character perfectly, destroying the lies of Satan, winning us back to trust, developing a perfect character, destroying death. We ask now that your spirit will connect the dots, all these points of facts and history and evidences that you have revealed to us. May the Holy Spirit connect them in our minds that we can see the picture clearly, understand what, what your methods and principles are, and that we will experience trust you and experience this transformation of our own hearts and minds and give us the ability to share this truth effectively with others that you might come soon we pray in your holy name amen